Welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. Hi everyone, this is Cynthia Walker, the host of the Brick Podcast. This time around, you'll hear a fun and wide-ranging Citizen Spotlight oral history interview with Reverend Laura Campbell, who's the current minister of the First Parish Unitarian Universalist Church, which sits across the street from the museum and has a storied history of its own. Before the interview premieres, however, I'd like to tell you a bit about what's happening at the museum since we last talked. We've got a robot. The museum crowdfunded a telepresence robot from a California company called Omni. The pandemic exacerbated an access issue that our museum wanted to fix. The ability to visit the museum on your own when you aren't able to step through the door. This robot, once set up and practiced with, will be able to take virtual visitors through the museum's galleries at their own direction, stopping for however long they like at objects on view. More information will be coming out about how to reserve a time to use the robot on our website and specifically on our digital learning center. So take a look at that link probably within the next week or so. As we come out of the pandemic and our community members slowly get vaccinated, we look forward to seeing more people in person again. However, a lot of things have changed for all of us one of which is accessible online programs and lectures. I think we've all become fans of being able to tune in from wherever we are and listen to people, whether it's down the street or across the country, just through your computer screen. Over the past year, we have had more people attend our virtual lectures and programs than in-person ones in previous years. We will likely continue some sort of hybrid version of our offerings to reach more audiences even after the pandemic is over. The last thing I'd like to mention is interest in volunteering. Volunteering at the museum can be very surprising to a lot of people. We have a lot of different jobs that you can do here. It's not just guiding tours, although that is one of them. So whether you enjoy giving tours and telling stories or collecting stories from other people, scanning and formatting old documents, entering data about artifacts on our database, harvesting plants in the Victory Gardens, or supporting events and programs by welcoming visitors. All of these jobs are incredibly important to the smooth running of a community museum like this one. So if you're more interested in learning how to volunteer, and if you'd like to fill out a form, then just go right to our website at brickstoremuseum.org, and there's a volunteer tab right under the Support Us menu. 
I want to take a moment to thank our business members who have hung on over the past year. 2020 certainly um, saw a lot of changes in our business community, and we certainly saw that trend here at the Brickstar Museum as well in our business memberships. Um, not everyone has been able to come back from the pandemic uh, hit yet. So I would really encourage you to uh, frequent, obviously, our local businesses to make sure that everybody thrives and survives here in the Kennebunks. To those businesses who have kept their membership up, I just want to mention them specifically and thank you so much for their support of the museum. And I want to just say you can really see how there was a domino effect here, uh, both locally, nationally, and internationally, in how businesses, especially local businesses, um, support other organizations like museums, nonprofits, and things like that. So special thank you to Clark Insurance, Deering Lumber, Houston & Company, Old House Parts, Well Housed, Home and Away Gallery, Hussey Seating, Kenny Bunk Savings Bank, Weir's Buick GMC, and Duffy's Tavern and Grill. Let's get to our main interview. Laura Campbell very kindly sat down with me via Zoom in November of 2020. And this is the interview that came out of that. So most of the time when we do oral histories at the museum, we invite someone to come and sit across the table from us. Uh, this time with the pandemic, we've been running interviews over Zoom, which works perfectly well. But sometimes different noises and things will get picked up that normally doesn't get picked up over our more high density recording equipment. So you might hear a little bit of a tinny noise or something like that. Uh, and just know that that was us talking on Zoom instead of on a professional microphone. But that's quite right because Lara was perfectly entertaining anyway. So let's uh, play the interview and I hope you enjoy. To start off, just to put everything in context, what generation would you consider yourself a part of? I am solidly Gen X. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. Gen X representing. You know, we've been uh, neglected lately because there's all this boomer and, and millennial talk and the Gen Xers get completely lost in the mix. So that is true. Us Gen That's Xers are totally taking back our, our, our space or whatever. I don't know. Very good. So uh, tell me about your first name. Where does it come from? Sure. Uh, my first name is the uh, Lara, L-A-R-A, which is the feminine of Lars. Um, in, uh, we, my dad had a cousin who has since passed away, but a cousin in Sweden whose name um, Svanta Lars, Eric Erikson, and, uh, which is a very traditional in, in Scandinavian uh, communities to have two middle names. And so Svanta's, one of Svanta's middle names was Lars, and my um, parents understood. They lived in Sweden in, back in the early 60s before I was born. Um, they found out that Lara was the feminine of Lars. So that is, that's half of the story. The other half of the story is that my father adored the movie Dr. Zhivago. Oh, of course. Yep. Okay. So um, th those two things collided, <laughs> the family heritage and Dr. Zhivago, and I became Lara. And uh, the, the, the third story to it is that um, when my mother was pregnant with me, so I'm the youngest of three, 
and um, my father desperately wanted a girl and my mom had a miscarriage after her, after my brother, my first brother. Um, and so then they had another, you know, got pregnant again and it was a boy. And um, so they made a, they said, okay, we'll have, we'll do this one more time. And if it's not a girl, then we'll adopt. And my father was teaching, my father's a sociologist and he was teaching a class on uh, population and it was in the age of uh, zero population growth, 2.4 children. Oh, sure. Yeah. He had to go into his class and announce to them that his wife was pregnant with his third <laughs> child. Um, and uh, a number of the, the folks were still, when I was a child, were um, friends of my father's um, as, after they graduated. And so they would always tell me about how I was, you know, they had to, got to harass my father because yeah. he was not practicing what he was preaching right. because I was a third child. Um, right. But, uh, and where was I going with that? Uh, the third story to the Third story was, oh, oh, that um, the third story was that when my mom was pregnant, my father went into a, a store and found a music box that plays Lara's theme, which is oh. somewhere my love from Dr. Zhivago. Yes. So um, he brought it home to my mother and that was kind of what sealed the deal. Oh, wow. That is a beautiful song and it's very nice gesture to hear about. Yes. yes. <laughs> I have the, the music box is actually packed somewhere. I, I, oh my God. I got it after my mother sold her house. So that's wonderful. Oh my God. Yeah. It might be the longest explanation of a, somebody's name that you've got. No, I, I appreciate it actually. Cause some, and it always surprises me cause I always expect most people to have the length of story that you just did. Cause you know, names obviously mean something to the owner of them. Um, but some people don't, don't know the background, which is funny to me. So I appreciate the story. I'm going to flip the two next questions because you were just talking about your parents. So I'm wondering yes. if you could tell me a little bit more about your parents. Sure. My father, Philip Campbell, uh, was a college professor, a sociologist. And um, when I was growing up, he taught at the University of Minnesota Duluth oh. and then uh, moved over to the University of Maryland European Division, teaching on oh. the military bases in Germany. Wow. Okay. Um, he is still there now, 32 years later, um, after he retired, um, he retired there, but um, he will eventually, hopefully in the next six months, eight months, nine months, be moving yeah. here to Kennebunk to live with us. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, you know, he'll be, he'll be coming to be a Kennebunker. So it should be <laughs> fun. Awesome. Um, my mother, uh, Kay Campbell is in Duluth, Minnesota still. Uh, she was, um, uh, before I was born, she was an elementary teacher, school teacher. And then, um, after I was, you know, after I got a little bit older, she, um, was a special ed aide and oh, worked, wow. um, was a special Olympics coach. And, uh, so both of my parents are educators and, um, definitely that, um, has been a, a guiding force in my life is to have two, two educators um, that raised me. So uh, my parents divorced when I was three. Oh. And um, I, uh, in the early 70s, when divorce was not as common as it is nowadays, um, but I lived with my mother until I was about uh, 11 and then lived with my father um, from about 11 on to graduating from high school. They were oh, both, wow. um, I described it um, in my uh, ministerial search packet um, that while my parents were not good partners 
um, as in a relationship by the time as the youngest, by the time I came along, they were really good co-parents. Wow. So they, um, you know, they would go to school conferences together. They would, you know, on the same page and communicating about making sure that all of my um, needs were met. This is going to lead to a question that isn't on there, but I always, you kind of alluded to it before, and I'm sure you have some, some, not to use a, a Saturday Night Live uh, phrase, but some deep thoughts on how we <laughs> develop into ourselves. Um, <laughs> how do you, yes. <laughs> how do you think that um, kind of your growing up has formed your, I mean, mm -hmm. what you work in today and what you do today? Uh, yeah, the short answer, it is utterly, completely. I, I am a product of how I was raised. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I am um, fifth generation Unitarian, which is kind of unusual. Most folks become Unitarian Universalists in their adult lives and when they're searching for an alternative to the religion of their upbringing. Um, I, however, was raised in the faith. My father was raised in the faith. My grandfather was, you know, so, um, so it's something that uh, for me, you know, my, my brothers totally didn't resonate or connect with it, um, mm -hmm. but it really connected and stuck for me um, and was one of the places uh, as certainly as an adolescent that was a safe place for me. Church was a really safe place. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was surrounded by people who cared about me and supported me, but also really challenged me and held me accountable from, you, you know, whenever I was a little out of line, you know, <laughs> I, there were people around who would be like, eh, 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 get back in line there, sweetheart. Um, <laughs> So, um, so the church was really important to me um, and, a, and a huge part of my life. Um, I also really feel like my father's, um, of all of us kids, you know, I'm the one that um, really kind of took advantage of my father's teaching. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, in yeah. that uh, he really wanted us. And, and well, I guess I... Well, I guess I shouldn't say I'm the only one because both of my brothers did too, but in very different ways. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm the one that definitely listened to my father's um, hypothesizing all over the place <laughs> about society and social issues um, and, uh, and, and developed kind of a, a keener interest in observing what was happening sure um so um and i you know i i started out my religious my professional religious career as a director of religious education so i ran the sunday school Ooh, okay yeah um so that was uh clearly both of my parents influence yeah. Yeah. uh <laughs> in that uh you know both the education piece and the church piece wow uh, so, That's yeah, right. so they really hugely have influenced me and in how I see the world. Now, I think there is some nature part. I'm not going to deny the nature part. Um, sure. but the nurture part was definitely really strong in my life. Wow. Thank you for speaking to that. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have talked a little bit about it, but um, where did you grow up? And then what do you remember most about it? Mm. So grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, which is right on Lake Superior. It's the, um, the most Western port on the Great Lakes. Um, 
and um, built on a hillside. So that is, you know, wow. that overlooks the lake. Um, okay. And um, so, you know, you'd be driving down the road and every time you turned, there would be water. <laughs> right. if you turned a certain direction, whether it was right or left, you would see the lake. Um, and I think that's the piece that I still to this day can picture in my mind is the lake oh, wow. um, yeah. and is the view down the hillside and seeing the lake and the water. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was a good place for me to be a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, certainly provided a, a a place of nurturing for me sure. that was important in my life. So, right. Yeah. And, and when did you move to, did you say Maryland? No, I never actually lived in Maryland. Okay. So um, we went to Germany, right? Oh. Uh, so I, I was in, yeah, I was in uh, Duluth until I was 18 uh, with the exception of, I spent a year, my father had a Fulbright teacher's exchange when I was in seventh grade. So I spent my seventh grade in school in England. Wow. Oh um, and uh, my father, you know, having done, he did his dissertation research in Sweden and okay. was constantly trying to get back to Europe. <laughs> so he took my brothers to Sweden when he did, took a, a sabbatical and then wow. he did a, took one my middle brother and lived in England for a while for a, um, uh, a couple of terms and then um, teaching there and then um, took me when he went out, did a Fulbright. Um, wow. So that was important to him that we all had the opportunity to live in a foreign country and see what that felt like and what that experience was like. Oh, sure. Um, but then in, when um, I graduated from high school, he, you know, he stuck around in Duluth until I graduated from high school. And then he took this job with the University of Maryland teaching on the military basis. And so I went with him for two years and okay, spent see, yeah. two years in the Kaiserslautern area in Germany. Wow. Um, and uh, before I then moved back uh, or moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, when I was 20 and was there until I was 27. Yeah. Um, and so then at 27, I moved, I did my... I did a, um, when I was in school, I did a, a certificate in substance abuse counseling and an associate's degree. So that was sort of my first professional degree was as a substance abuse counselor. Wow. And worked in residential treatment as well as outpatient treatment. Um, and then uh, started working for Planned Parenthood as, um, in, a, in one of the clinics um, that did um, reproductive health care. And mm -hmm. um, did uh, finished my undergrad degree in family social science with a, a self-designed concentration in sexuality wow. um, education right. yeah. and um, and then went in uh, at 27 moved to uh, Michigan to Michigan State University mm -hmm. and did a master's and part of a PhD there um, in marriage and family therapy wow um, I was working on my PhD and volunteering in the church all the time, spending mm -hmm. all of my life. That was sort of my, again, church became my safe haven outside of graduate school, the <laughs> place where um, I could go and just be human and not have to be a grad student right. um, and, um, and not have to be anybody's therapist or teacher, um, but, you know, started teaching sexuality education, of course, um, and just got really burned out with the whole academic world and very that. disillusioned. 
Mm -hmm. um, and felt like I couldn't see myself as tenure track faculty um, yeah. based on what it had become over sure. the years, the sort of publish and perish lifestyle um, and respect, have so much respect for faculty and knew that my heart would not be fulfilled doing that. Wow. Um, so I, I took a leap of faith and I uh, moved across the country to Princeton, New Jersey and um, lived in a congregant's basement for a year <laughs> and was um, a youth advisor and a, a assistant to the religious education director. Wow. Um, and um, kind of, I wanted to see what it felt like to work in a church in a, what I thought was a fairly low commitment. It, you know, when I say that now, I think low commitment. I just moved myself across the country, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but um, so I did that for a year. And then I took um, a job at uh, a congregation in White Plains, New York. So suburban New York City. Oh, yeah. And uh, as their director of religious education, I ran that program for almost nine years. Uh, and then um, did an internship and then came to Kennebunk and have been here for six, going on seven years now. Is it really? Wow. I know. Not the longest job I've had yet, but it's, it's <laughs> on track for that. Wow. Thank you for taking uh, me through that. It's always interesting to see how, well, how we all get into our jobs and, you know, why hopefully we like what we do and how it builds upon our previous experiences. So. Yeah. Yeah. And when, and when I first thought, I was like, wow, I did all this other education beforehand. And now yeah. I'm going to be a minister at the time. And I was like, what did, what's the connection? And then I stopped and I looked at what I was doing. And it was like substance abuse, sexuality education, marriage and family therapy, religious education. Yeah, it's all, all stuff that I use almost every day. Yeah, in my I can see that. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a like direct X, X to Z kind of thing, but, uh, you know, kind of got there eventually. Right. <laughs> uh, this is going off course now too, but I've always wondered this question as well. Um, since you have to speak very inspirationally almost every week, I assume, I wonder <laughs> where you get that inspiration from. Oh, that is uh, the um, the three million dollar ministerial question. Is where <laughs> you find your sources of inspiration. Um, so, for me, uh, there, there, and I'm, and I cannot now remember. I think it was James Luther Adams. Now, if I say that, um, he talked about. He's a, a Unitarian theologian. Talked about life passed through the fire, um, and the fire of commitment. The fire of passion of of just existence um and so that is essentially kind of the model that i use is where am i seeing or experiencing um that fire in me yeah. thing um that that resonates the most um so my inspiration um i i'm not uh, limited to my source of writing or my source of topic um, based on one particular thing. So sometimes um, I look at Bible scripture, I look at scripture and yep. use that as a source of inspiration. Um, sometimes it's um, music, something that I'm, you know, a piece of music that just fills my heart and my spirit. And I say, um, that's it. You know, that's the piece. Um, sometimes it's something I'm reading, whether yeah. it's, you know, fiction or nonfiction, uh, a newspaper article, 
Um, sometimes it's uh, a walk on the beach that just resonated in that moment. Um, a lot of times it's conversations mm. oh, with sure. people. Yep. Um, I look at my preaching as being an ongoing conversation with the congregation. Nice. Um, so a lot of times things that I, that I just talk with people in general and in passing conversation becomes, become ideas or things that spark um, what I might work with. Sure. Yeah, um, and then I, then I look for those other pieces and sources, whether it's poetry or something that supports that I'm, I'm in the process right now. Um, the sermon that I'm working working on for this Sunday um, is based. Uh, Unitarian Universalist uses six sources of inspiration, um, and one of them is the prophetic words and deeds of people that um, inspire us to work for justice. Okay. And and so when I look at that whole source, I think you know I've talked about prophetic people I did a sermon last year about we're all prophets in our own right and and what is our prophetic voice and how do we use that um but this time what jumped out at me was the concept of words and deeds mm -hmm. um, and about so what I'm working with right now is how do we align our words and our actions oh and how do we make them consistent and we are the most prophetic when our words and our deeds mesh, when our yes. passion and our action fit together. So that's a very good point. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's it's sort of just looking and looking within through you know prayer, through meditation, um, to find what it is and what I think people need to hear. Yeah, at oh, that sure. moment. Yeah. You know, every week I ask myself, what do, what do they need to hear? What does this congregation need to hear from me? And sometimes it's that they need to hear that you know, we need to get up and get moving and get stuff done. Sometimes yeah. it's that we need to, to sit and be still. And, you know, I, um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a service around grief for All Souls Day. Oh, yeah, sure. About and this time, you know, I've talked about grief from a lot of different angles. And this time I wanted to talk about it from the place of supporting other people through their grief and how holy it is. And I, and I use that word in all its completeness, holy in that it's sacred, but holy in that it is a circle. It is a, a, a place of um, wholeness that we are completed. Right when we are in the place and holding the space with somebody who is grieving. Yeah. That that is one of our greatest gifts that we can give somebody is not to try to fix them, mm. but to just sit with them, you know, metaphorically or in non COVID times, putting our arms around somebody and just holding them and letting them feel that. Yeah. Whatever it is that is for as long as they need to. Right. That to me is the crux of ministry. Sure. It's about being with people on their journeys, um, being, and, and I, it's part of why I feel so honored and so it's more than, it's more than grateful. It's um, that people let me into their lives to be with them 
in yeah. their in their moments of intense pain and their moments of intense joy. Yeah. As well as the mundane. <laughs> the, you know, the I broke my my foot and how do I get groceries? You know, right. like I mean right. it's, it's, it's everything, but it's it's that people let you in in a really genuine way. Right. That they aren't often likely to let other people in. And that is sacred work for me. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good, a good point. And I'm just wondering how you, speaking on grief specifically, yeah. but how you carry, I don't want to say weight, or maybe it is a weight mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the, the, I'm sure various people yeah. and groups that, you know, you listen to and speak to. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? Some days I deal with it better than others. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, you know, so it is because I view it as such sacred work that, that that sort of drives me and, and, and fulfills me in that process. Um, you know, I, I have friends that are in ministry that I can talk to when I need support around, um, you know, sort of ministerial issues. Yeah. Friends that are absolutely completely have nothing to do with ministry and that, you know, the mundane, ridiculous um, part of life um, is, is it. So, I mean, I think I try, you know, to take care of myself, to, you know, have some balance and eating and sleeping right. and sort of exercising um you know if, if nothing else it's chasing the dog um <laughs> there you go you know having having uh an, you know a, a pet that provides me with joy mm-hmm. um that is completely ridiculous in so many <laughs> ways um really um helps nourish that um you know my my spouse i i could not do this work that i do Mm-hmm. Without my spouse's support, um, because it is, and, and with a spouse that understands and gets how important this work is, right? Because I am on call twenty four seven. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and right. you know, he gets it. You know, he gets that. Sometimes the phone's going to ring in the middle of dinner, and I need to step away. Yeah, and yeah. say, "I'm sorry, honey, I can't." do x y and z you know i'm sorry i can't get the dishes done because (laughs) you know i somebody is in crisis and i need to go right um but then also you know clearly experiences the joys too with me yeah Um, and does put boundaries and limits and say sometimes you have to say no (laughs) that's a lesson for all of us i think Uh because family comes first and um (laughs) You know, I love my congregation, but I also love my family and, and yes. have to put that boundary there. So a good point. And actually speaking of family, tell me uh, something you know about your ancestors and it can be anything. Oh, goodness. Um, I know quite a bit. I've had to do a lot, you know, it, from my years as a family therapist oh, yeah. I had, and as a marriage and family therapist, you know, the basis that we looked at was family. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I've done a lot of, you know, genograms and kind of figured out little things about my family history. And um, 
but I'm also kind of the one in the family that would ask stories as a kid and get family members to tell me stories about things. <laughs> so now, of course, when you ask me, you know, for fun little insights, I'm like, hmm, what are those things um, <laughs> that I, you know, little stories. So um, one of the things that has always been fascinating to me is that um, my grandparents, my, my grandfather was um, a, a, an accountant, uh, okay. Uh, bookkeeper type person, good with numbers. Um, and my grandmother, um, after she, um, well, well, she went to school for this. And then when she had children, she wasn't working, but she was a librarian. Oh, wow. Um, and, um, and they took this kind of really interesting leap in their early marriage. Um, my father was a young kid and they moved to Celine, Michigan. Okay. And my um, grandfather was the um, the bookkeeper, the accountant, the for um, a small cooperative farm called Celine Valley Farms hmm. in Celine, Michigan. Um, and uh, one of the fascinating things to me was that in, um, during World War II, when um, they were uh, bringing Japanese folks to internment camps. Yep. The farm, um, Saline Valley Farm, agreed to be um, a site for oh. folks to come live. So they had a number of Japanese families that wow. lived and worked on the farms because the farming was considered essential business work. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. And so that was one of the ways that some of the folks could avoid being in internment camps oh. was right, to come yeah. live, on, live on the farm um, and, and work there. Wow. Um, so there was always a number, um, and uh, uh, I think it was probably now about 10 years or so ago, maybe 15, um, my aunt got connected again with one of the children oh, of yeah. some of the couples that had been on the farm. And oh. so I got to go meet um, her and talk with her about her experience as a young kid, um, both in the internment camps, but yeah. then also being able to come to the farm. Um, wow. and, um, and, and be raised with my parents on the farm kind of <laughs> it was really wow. fascinating stuff. Yeah. And when you said they moved for, uh, to Michigan, where they, yes. where did they come from? They were in, um, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, okay. Um, my grandmother was, um, was a newspaper person, wow. um, in the twenties. Um, my grandfather had a number of failed businesses. My great grandfather, I should say, um, had a number of failed businesses, and so my my great grandmother was the primary provider. Wow! Um, in that family, For her. <laughs> so they lived in a a studio apartment in uh, Cleveland. The story was that my grandfather slept on slept on a uh, Murphy bed. Oh yeah! And when when he went off to college, they rented out the Murphy bed to oh, this young, this young, um, uh, graduate student in, uh, library sciences. <laughs> and, uh, so my grandfather used to always say that he had to marry my grandmother in order to get his bed back <laughs> in the house. So, That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So looking at, um, what the museum likes to focus on in exhibits and different things that we do, is um, things that we all share in common, regardless of when we were born and where we live and everything else in between, which are emotions. Mm -hmm. um, 
So tell me about a time that you were scared. Now there's plenty of them, but just yeah. one. Time. <laughs> um, so a time that I was scared, I would say um, I was with uh, my stepsister um, and we were down at, I think uh, we were in Duluth and we, there was this like rock kind of, embankment area um by i think it was chester creek or maybe it was i can't remember which creek it was and i had um started climbing up it and i reached a point where i couldn't get any further yep and i didn't know how to get down and i started screaming like just um and uh, my stepsister, what I remember about it, um, partly because I use it when I talk about when I talk about adrenaline, about oh, how sure. adrenaline gives you amazing, amazing uh, energy and force. What I remember was Jennifer um, reached down, she because she ran around to the top because it was kind of, it gotten grassy, okay, no yeah. rocks, and she reached down and like pulled me up the embankment. Oh my gosh! Um, and you know, never. Could she ever have that strength? Right, in a normal mode. But yeah, I was absolutely terrified. And I just remember the two of us sitting kind of in the grass at the top, like shaking. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that is scary. Yeah. Um, so tell me about a time that you were sad or that made you sad. Um, I just actually used this in... Um, and I may, I don't know if I'll cry, but you'll never know. Um, so uh, in my adult life, I got very close with my aunt, my father's sister. Mm -hmm. um, and um, she, when she reached a point, she had, um, she had a heart transplant and then got wow. lung cancer. Okay. Uh, and it was in the final stages of her dying. And um, we had, we had gone uh, I was living in New York and got the, the word that she was dying and drove um, through the middle of the night. Um, Jay, my spouse, um, and I had been together like nine months at that point. Um, and he dropped everything and went with me to drive wow. through the night um, to be with her um, in her final moments. And, um, you know, we were, they, they, she was home. They brought her home on hospice from the hospital um, and, you know, she was just holding on and holding on and holding on. Um, and part of that was because there was a lot of activity around her. Like I was there, Jay was there, my dad had flown in, my brother had come up, my cousin came in and we were just all there and laughing and telling stories and jokes, which is very yeah. common in our family. <laughs> um, and, you know, and my aunt was not, she was not with it, but she was still present sure. you know, she was with us. Um, and so I left and um we went back to the we went to the hotel and a couple hours later you know it had gotten quiet in the house and um and my uncle had fallen asleep and my dad was doing something and my brother was doing the dishes um and she passed hmm. my brother called me to tell me this and uh you know in the flurry of trying to get out the door i kind of turned and had for the first time I experienced that wailing of grief yeah, um, where just like my whole body and I, and I'm, I'm, I 
have no idea what the people in the room next to us. I mean, my cousin was on one side of us, but on the other side of us, I was like, wow, that must have been like this a terrifyingly blood curdling wail that came out of me. And I just kind of oh. collapsed onto the ground um, crying. And, um, and Jay came over and didn't say anything, but just sat down on the floor and held me oh. and let me cry. Um, yeah. And, and that was a sadness that I had, not experienced before i mean i have been i had been sad before and had crappy things happen but that moment of grief um was like i had never experienced before wow yeah um so and that was that story became the center point of my sermon around supporting people in grief yep that's it's fresh in my mind because i just wrote about it that it was, you know, that was, that was a really powerful moment for me to have somebody not try to fix me. Right. Just to sit. To and just sit and be there. with me. Yeah. And grief. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I know it's hard to talk about those sorts of things. Um, and not to, not to flip the coin. Yeah, well, let's go. But <laughs> last emotion question is tell me about a time that you were happy. Yeah. Um, so so many of them well that's um, good <laughs> that it's sort of like um i think um you know um so i i'm gonna hopefully he won't be too bad so when when jay proposed oh yeah me and asked me to marry him um it was it was about three weeks after that incident oh. after my aunt had died um yeah and oh. i had um I really had no, you know, we had we we hadn't really talked about whether we'd get married or not. Yeah. Um. And uh, and and we both had a lot of stressful work things happening. My aunt had just died, and and he was like, you know, let's just go away for the weekend. And so, um, we we <laughs> we went to you know Storm King Mountain, which was literally oh, twenty yeah. minutes from where we lived. So it wasn't like we went, you know, <laughs> far away. We just got like away. Yeah. Um, and um, we were heading back down to this, this spot on the river. And I had this sort of like, we got out of the car and this moment like kind of flashed through my mind of, I wonder if Jay's going to propose this weekend. And then it was like, eh, whatever, you're ridiculous. Just stop, stop, you know, don't even do this. Um, so then when he actually proposed, um it was um okay i'll tell you the whole story the okay whole, yeah whole proposal story <laughs> is that um a couple months before um jay had uh wanted to we he was meeting my aunt and uncle it's all tied up with my aunt is why this is connected um and wanted to make me my favorite cake and couldn't it couldn't for my birthday okay um, <laughs> couldn't make it happen so instead he bought a box of the cake mix and like right. taped okay. a candle to the to the box right <laughs> and was like look happy birthday right so so then the cake bo the box of cake mix kind of became a joke right <laughs> of like um you know like the traveling box of cake mix you know so there were pictures <laughs> taken with it all weekend and um 
And then, so what he did was he had taped the, my engagement ring to the box. Oh, oh God. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and was like, let's take a selfie at, you know, with this beautiful mountain and the river in the background. And look, I brought the spice cake, the box of cake and, and I, you know, and so he like quickly, and this was back before you could actually see yourself in a selfie. Oh, right. Um, so, you know, he put the camera out and, and we took a couple of pictures and, um, I was like, let's look at the picture. And he was like, no, no let's not, you know, cause he was afraid I would say the ring oh, right. on there. Um, oh. um, and, uh, so my last words to him right before he dropped on his knee to propose to me was, why are you being so weird? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then he... He he dropped out his ear and, and spun the box around so that yeah. I could see the ring on the spike on the you know and um <laughs> and that was the moment. So um and I, you know, of course like started to cry and you know couldn't really breathe and um and uh at one point like then he was like, I gotta look at the picture to see if the because he was so worried that the yeah. that the cake mix wasn't going to be in the picture <laughs> right. um, but it was um and and I kept saying to him I said yes right I said yes right I said yes to you right I said yes right Did, yeah. um because <laughs> uh, I I have no memory of whether I said yes or not oh yeah right I just remember asking after the fact I said yes right I said yes <laughs> I said yes right um he says yes you did um uh, and then we walked back to the car and I called my uncle because that would be the first place that was the house. That was the number that I needed that I always called first. Oh, that's so whenever cool. there were any um, issues or anything, you know, with <laughs> bad, indifferent, yep. I'm starting out with school, whatever it is. I hate, you know, my job or whatever, you know, right. um, at that moment. So, um, so I called that house oh, man. To, to tell them first. Wow. <laughs> so. I like that. It's a good story. <laughs> Um, so moving to some culture questions, and these are, um, these can be as long and short as, as you want, but, uh, what is your favorite book if you have one? <laughs> oh my goodness. My favorite <laughs> book. Okay. It's going to sound ridiculous, but my favorite book is the B book, which is the Berenstein's Bear children book. Oh, Yes, I love Berenstain Bears. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's the B book. Um, and there was something about it was, I think it was the alliteration of Big Brown Bear. Oh, yeah. Blue, right. You know, Blue Bull or, you know, Big Brown Bear, Blue Bull, Beautiful Baboon, Blowing Bubbles, Biking Backwards, wow. Bump. And I think it's Buster Billy's Badger Bing, ba Beagle Bag Pipe Band or something. The Bananas. I don't remember the rest of it. I got the yeah. first three down. But yeah, that book has, I still have my childhood book. Um, Love that. And it, it I think, I, I, I think part of what I love about it is it's this whole series of events that mm -hmm. you never could have predicted. Yeah. And it, to me, is such a metaphor for life. That life is a series of these events and these things that happen and we have some agency in them, but then there are things that we could not ever predict happening. 
Now, the sad part of the book is that that's what broke Baby Bird's Blue Balloon, is how oh. it ends. <laughs> but, but to me, it was, it, was, it was just this series of, like, life is just this whole series of events and things that happen. That's fantastic. How we react and respond to them. Wow. Yes, good lesson. Yeah. <laughs> they always had good lessons, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. The B book. Uh, what was the first movie you saw in the theater or first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Oh, gosh. I don't remember. Here's, I, it, I don't remember what the movie, uh, it must have been Bambi. I, it, oh. it had to be Bambi now that I think about it. I remember seeing Bambi in the movie theater. Oh, that's... And that was like heart-wrenching. Yeah, right. I think yeah. I've only seen that movie once because it was so horrible. I'm not sure I've seen it again since then. Um, but yeah. Wow. All right. Bambi. Bambi. Um, so uh, tell me about your first car. Oh, my first car. <laughs> um, so there were, there were a couple of kind of trial. Um, but the first, so the first car that I bought or the first car that I, what, oh. Uh, I'm from a car family, so there's distinctions. (laughs) The first, you know, like the first car that you know, I grew up with around antique vehicles. How about that you grew up with and were learning to drive with and all? Okay, oh well, that changes too. So um, (laughs) I learned to drive um, two cars. Um, One, my mother insisted that I learn how to drive a stick shift because she drove a stick shift. Okay, wow. Um, So, um, and I drove a a stick shift most of my life uh, wow. uh, until the last mm, 10 or so years where now I drive an automatic and I pine every day for a stick shift. Oh, okay. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I miss it. I miss it so much. Um, but, um, but that car wasn't very exciting. The, the car that I, le- I learned to drive on a 76 Chevy Impala four-door sedan. Oh my gosh. Wow. With, All right. It was brown with one maroon door. <laughs> okay. We called it the boat. Um, and I couldn't get into the car and reach across under without tweaking my legs under the steering wheel to unlock the car door. Okay. (laughs) So I learned early to go unlock the passenger door first. Nice. And everyone thought I was so like respectful and chivalrous and because I couldn't reach (laughs) unlatch it on the other side. Well, it, it it seemed that you were being polite, so that was. I know nice. I was being very, yeah. It was because I could not reach the, the other <laughs> side of the car. We, my dad, at one time had this like stick thing with like prongs on the end to be able to reach across and unlock the door. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, my God, yeah, love it. The cars were so big, so yeah. Uh, and actually, as we're on the subject, what was the first car that you bought? First car that I bought was a 1972 uh, green olive green Volkswagen Beetle. Nice. In okay. Germany. Oh, I lived in Germany. Wow. Fantastic. So. Even better. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I was just talking with Jay about, uh, we were talking about cars and horsepower and, and I said, honey, remember I drove a Volkswagen Beetle where like it, I had to floor it to try to get onto the Autobahn. Right. <laughs> and hopefully not get like killed, creamed by a, right. by a, a truck, you know, <laughs> So, yeah. Oh, do you have a favorite song? I have a lot of favorite songs um, yeah. that kind of pass through my life for different reasons. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I can't say that I have one particular favorite. That's fair. What did you want to be when you grew up? Mm, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Oh. I know. I know. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it, right? <laughs> Not what you would have expected. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was kind of that kid in my neighborhood that when, you know, when my neighbor's dog got out, they would call me because I was the only one that Bandit would come to. Oh, and, nice. Um, you know, if there was a stray cat in the neighborhood, I would inevitably bring it home. Oh my and gosh. Um, my mother <laughs> informed me that I caught a robin once when I was a child. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I came like screaming in the house about, I caught a bird, I caught a bird. And she was like, whatever. And then she was like, oh, you really caught That's a bird. <laughs> I had a robin in my hand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh I put it back. I put it back. <laughs> We didn't keep it. Um, but yeah, I wanted to be a vet. Um, and, wow. and then when I realized um, that I would have to deal with the surgery and the hurt animal, yes. that, was, right. that was much harder. It, you know, was less, when it, when it became clear to me that it was not going to all be about, you know, making everybody happy. Yeah. Think, plus there's a lot of science. And I'm just not really a science <laughs> yes. person. Uh, what was your first job? My very first, well, I was a newspaper deliverer. Oh. That was my very first, my brothers had a paper route, so then it became mine. It kind of got passed down. Oh, wow. Um, so I delivered newspapers and babysat. Um, my first job with a paycheck <laughs> um, was working, I worked at, um, uh, a nursing home in the kitchen. Oh, um, well, yeah. And uh, was, uh, did the, sir, you know, did the dishes and served the meals and clean up and stuff at a nursing home. Wow. That's a good job to have. Uh, what was school like for you? Oh, that, <laughs> um, school was really hard for me. Um, as, a, as a kid with an undiagnosed learning disability, uh, I was, you know, never, I hated to read mm -hmm. and it was really hard for me to read and I never understood why it never made sense. Um, and, and so it was, it was torture. It felt like torture as a kid. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I, I didn't really like school. I mean, I was kind of a BC student, you know, I got B's and C's. Yep. And it wasn't until um, college that I kind of found my academic niche uh, and, you know, made the dean's list for the, it, it, that was the, college was when I started to kind of get accolades and rewards for education. For that, yeah. Um, prior to that, it was a lot of just unhappiness. It, it was really, it was, it was hard for me. And I never, it wasn't until I was in high school when um, uh, my uh, biology teacher was like, I think Laura has a learning disability. I think she's dyslexic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and um, that then we started working on some coping skills to help me kind of deal with, it. I mean, I, I, I just sort of muddled through previous right. to that. Wow. Um, so, and, and, you know, still to this day, um, <laughs> I, I won't ever go to see a movie with um, subtitles because it oh, takes yeah. so much work for me to read wow. 
that I, to read the subtitles, I, I just, it, it's very hard. Um, I hadn't thought of that to be honest, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. it's exhausting for me. Yeah. So it's not enjoyable. Um, <laughs> right. So, well, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I read now it takes me a lot longer, so I have to make sure, you know, when I'm doing reading for sermons or, um, for school that I allot extra time, um, right. and take lots of breaks. Um, yeah. and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I got through Shakespeare in college by watching movies. Yep. <laughs> that was how, because that made sense to me. I could, in, I could like take it in that way. Right. Yeah. Um, as a, as more of a visual, uh, experience than reading. So. Right. Oh yeah, exactly. And at least with Shakespeare, they actually just speak the, the lines that are in the book instead of. Correct. Anything. Correct. <laughs> Sometimes there was a little bit of a plot turn, but you know, yeah, yeah I would sit there, you know, I'd rent the movie and sit there and like watch and and follow along that was <laughs> I like that it helped me hear it it helped me to hear right. it a lot exactly so this is my last uh kind of section of questions okay um so it's kind of looking looking out uh beyond um mm -hmm. if you suddenly became an artist what would you create i think i would want to be a musician i envy people who can sing and play instruments and, yeah. and create. I mean, I envy a lot of artwork um, because I, I don't always feel like that's my skill set. Um, uh, but, but music is, you know, really, wow. You know, yeah. that's just yeah. to be able to do that. And um, that's what, if that's I could, if I could have some sort of magic power or, you know, that would be it. That's a good choice. I like that. What would you do if time travel existed? Now, does it, are you designating forward or backwards for your uh, time travel? E actually, either case. Good. good. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see. You know, if time travel exists, this sounds going to sound super cliche as a minister to say this. <laughs> um, but I think I would want to go back and hang out with Jesus. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't sound um, cliche. I haven't heard that before. So <laughs> okay. Well, I, 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 I'm so so yeah. I, because I'm just so curious about you know this you know this man who like had mm -hmm. such a vision and an understanding about things so beyond what everybody else did at that point. Yeah, and could speak in a way that people just got it. Yeah, right. And who was completely unafraid to, like, challenge the systems. There's my Unitarian Universalist, like, social justice. <laughs> yeah. Man, Jesus was so, he was so anti-authority and, like, completely challenging all of the systems of power and structure and the way that society was. Yeah, that's true. In in a way that to this day we have only seen glimpses. Yes, right. Of people being able to do, um, you know, I mean, he challenged this. Jesus challenged the system so much that an entire complete religion was started. <laughs> right. <laughs> that well, yeah. like has been the foundation for so many people's lives. Yep. Oh, yeah. 
to just like hang out with him and be like, so tell me another story. <laughs> right. You know, that would, that would just, wow. I like that. That's a really nice point. Uh, you remind me of a um, lesson that I heard in uh, college and it was a European history professor. He was saying whether or not you believe in, you know, the, the role that Jesus plays in your religion or not. He had to have been a pretty amazing human being for other people to want to write an entire book or pass on stories about him. Yeah. Considering everybody likes to mostly talk about themselves and their, their heroic acts. <laughs> right, so. Exactly. Yeah. That all of these people wrote. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. I used to just say that he, he really knew how to, how to move a crowd. Yeah. You know, like seriously, anybody who could like bring, you know, that, wow. Yeah. And just, you know, just to hang out with the man, you know, <laughs> the man, like legend, you know, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. really cool to like, <laughs> Because I think he was doing a lot more subversive stuff than got written down, too. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one last question. Why is history important? And perhaps, if you don't think so, why, why not? Oh, it's super important. I mean, I think I've told you this before, that I'm kind of learning to embrace my history geek side, my history <laughs> nerd side. Like, I, I didn't really th ever think of myself as a historian, but... But I, now, now I'm sort of starting to see that side of myself and how much I love it. Um, I think it's really important for so many reasons. But um, I do think that if we don't know and learn and understand our history, we repeat it. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that we are here to learn from the past. I believe that we are here to make this world a better place for people, for animals, for the earth. Um, and, and if we don't learn and understand, not just about the history that's been written down. Yes. You know, the history that gets told by wealthy, primarily white men. Mm -hmm. But the history and, and, and the way that people lived their lives. Right. Um, Yes, exactly. It, it's it's so rich and so important to help. I, I feel like our our whole role in life is about healing, healing what's broken. Mm -hmm. And not that we will ever be fully whole, but that we will gain a sense of wholeness. And we do that by being open and honest about our history and about other people's history and not whitewashing it and not pretending that it didn't exist, um, but facing it, owning that, owning our role in perpetuating it, and then making changes for other people. Yeah. That's a really that's a really nice way to to end your last question. And almost uh, on key, as I started talking, the dog is coming up the stairs. So because <laughs> this whole time I was like, please don't let the dog start barking. Um, any last parting words? If I I didn't mean I don't want to cut you off. If you no no, I want to. <clears throat> I mean I uh, I guess my parting words are words of appreciation, Cynthia, to you and the brick store. Um, <clears throat> that I would be. I would be remiss if I didn't um, 
sing your praises and and the museum's praises because it is such an important part of this community and you know and i feel like you and i on opposite sides of the streets with our yes. our employment um, <laughs> yes. you know the church my, my church on one side and in the brick store on the other side um can help to be some of those pillars yes right community for sure um, and and holding up the pillars of history mm -hmm. um for everyone to know and understand and learn um, Agreed. And, and, and that, and the work that you do is so important in that. Um, because you can come at it from all these different ways and oh, you, yeah. can, you get to speak truth to power in a way that other people don't get to. And I just yeah. love that about what happens over at the brick store. Because <laughs> you're like, here's it. the facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can't argue. Oh. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's such important work and, and, um, you know, the more that, that we as a community can do to support, um, you know, small uh, museums and, and places uh, where history is rich and alive is so important. Thank you very much for all your time today. And I will let you go to enjoy the rest of your day. Yes. Back to my uh, trying to figure out my words and deeds sermon. Oh, yeah. That's so. right. That's the plan. <laughs>